I don't know if you've ever noticed, we uh, tend to take the story of Christmas, the birth of Jesus, the incarnation of God Almighty as a man, for granted. We're familiar with the story. We know the story. We go over it and over it every year. We read the scriptures. We read about the announcement of the angel to Mary and then to Joseph and then to Zechariah and, and then the shepherds and then the wise men. And we know the story. We have little models of the story in our house. I heard about a family recently that uh, they set up their nativity and they set it up in one place in their house. And when they set it up early in the month of December, they put the wise men on the east end of the, I mean the west, no, the east end of the room, way over there. And then every day they move them a little bit closer. So they arrive on Christmas Day, I guess, except that's not exactly right. They didn't arrive on the day of Jesus' birth. Oh, and that wasn't on December 25th, probably. But we all know the story. But here's what we forget. Because we all know the story, we forget that this is a really strange story. If God Almighty is going to be born King of the Jews and institute his kingdom on the earth, this is not the story we would expect. It's not the story anyone would expect. It's not, in fact, the story anyone did expect at the time. You remember when the wise men arrive in Jerusalem and they say, hey, where is he? And they go, who? The, we saw the star, the one born king of the Jews. And Herod's going, well, the king of the Jews? I'm the king of the Jews, Herod says. It's not what he expected. Of course, Jesus had already been born by that time. It's not the expected story. The Jewish people expected a king. They didn't really get one. Well, the story is also reported in the book of Philippians, which is kind of a strange place for the Christmas story to be reported in the letters of Paul many years later. Here's what Philippians says. It's in chapter 2, if you'd like to look at it. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped 
clung to, hold on, held on to. But emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men. And being found as in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, that's a very brief encapsulation of the Christmas story. Though he was God, he emptied himself to become a man. How's that possible? God, the eternally existing thing. In one of the three persons of his being, I'm already confused. One of the three persons of his being is born. Becoming a created being. God participated in creation personally. Now, God is the creator, so of course God participates in creation or there is no creation. But in the incarnation, God, the uncreated, becomes created. Now, if that's going to happen, that is a huge thing. That is the biggest of all things ever. But that's not how it happened. Huge thing. Biggest of all things ever. It was kind of quiet. Well, it wasn't kind of quiet. It was utterly unknown. So that when the wise men arrived, maybe a couple of years later, and they arrive in Jerusalem because they read some prophecies and they understood the meaning of this sign that they saw, and they show up in Jerusalem and say, where is he, the king of the Jews that was born? We saw his star. And everyone looks at him and goes, what? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? So the most important thing that ever happened went unnoticed. That's amazing. But you know, I think it was essential. <laughs> it had to go unnoticed. Or it wouldn't have. Now, of course, it wasn't unnoticed by everyone. And so in Luke chapter 2, or well, let's start in chapter 1. In Luke chapter 1, you read the story, right? 
How does the story begin? In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. That was not a thing they would have been proud of. In fact, it was a thing we read later in this text that damaged their reputation that they had no children. So when they do have a child, now in their advanced age, it relieves them of this stigma that they had upon them at this point. Who are these people? Nobody. That's who these people were. Nobody. He's a priest. He's doing the priestly job, but he's not the high priest. He's not the chief priest. He's not an important priest. He's of, we, we're told what division he's in. And he's doing these duties. According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. This is not an important duty among priests. It's like his turn to burn some incense in the temple. So who is this guy, Zacharias? Nobody. But he becomes the father of the last Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist. The forerunner of Messiah. But you know, nobody really noticed at the time. His wife, Elizabeth, she uh, does conceive. The angel appears to Zacharias and announces this, tells him this prophecy of their, who their child will be, who he will become. Zacharias, listen now, the angel, the angel Gabriel appears to him he notices it's an angel, we know, because he's afraid. <laughs> That's his reaction. And the angel says, don't be afraid. It's all right. Got good news. He tells him this prophecy about he will be the forerunner before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So we're, this is the Elijah prophet, the, the foretold prophet forerunner of Messiah. And he's going to be a great man. And Zacharias says, well, how will I know? For how do I know you're telling me the truth? <laughs> he's an angel. But Zacharias, it's like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I can believe this. 
Well, it is a big thing for him and Elizabeth, who can't have children, to be told they're going to have a child. But Zacharias is like, ah, it's, an an- it's the angel. Well, so Zacharias, the angel says, well, here's how you're going to know. You won't be able to speak until the child is born. So now, Zacharias has something to say, but he cannot speak. Anyway, they have the baby. It is John the Baptist. But of all the people, of all the priests, Zacharias... who's not even a good enough priest to believe an angelic announcement on the first try. Not what you'd expect. Well, then the next thing in the story is the angel visits Mary. Who is Mary? Now, please don't take offense, but the answer to that question is nobody. Until this, nobody. Mary, it lives in Nazareth. She's a teenage girl living in Nazareth. You remember when Jesus came along later in his public ministry, people used to say, can anything good come from Nazareth? And that was like an argument against his claims. (laughs) He's from Nazareth. That can't be right. Mary's from Nazareth. She's just this kid. Why her? This is the greatest work of motherhood ever. Ever. Why her? Well, then the story goes on and Jesus is born. Now, he, his parents live in Nazareth, but according to Scripture, the Messiah must be born in Bethlehem. So how do we get these two utterly insignificant people to Bethlehem? Well, we have a tax. We have a registration. We have a census. They've got to go. They go to Bethlehem. They get to Bethlehem. We all know the story, right? Bethlehem. Why on earth would the king of Israel not be born in Jerusalem? Zion, the city of God, the original city on a hill. Well, he will die there. But he was not to be born there. He's born in the city of David because he has to be of David. And so he's born in the city and the prophecy, like we read in the story of the wise men, the prophecy announced 
he would be born in Bethlehem. So when the wise men show up and they ask, and Herod, who's only sort of claims to be Jewish in order to be king of the Jews, doesn't know anything about these prophecies, so he asks, and they tell him, Bethlehem, it's got to be born in Bethlehem. But what kind of place is Bethlehem? No place. No place. Bethlehem is a country town, a small town in the sticks, as we say. This is not the story any of us would write. It is the story God wrote. In Bethlehem, well, and not just in Bethlehem, right? So they're in town for this census thing, and so is everyone else who needs to go to Bethlehem. So there's no place to stay. So they're camping. They're camping when their baby is born. Have you ever been camping? Anyone here been camping? Would you want to have your baby while camping? I don't think so. It's not clean. They're actually where they pick their camping spot, which is kind of a smart place because I guess maybe it had some cover in a stable, which is a place for animals. It's not really clean. It is not a good place for anyone to be born. Now, we romanticize this, right? We think, you know, the, the manger must glow or something. It did not glow. In fact, it was probably made of stone, so it was probably cold. But it was the thing they had that would fit the purpose And we sing songs that, you know, are all about, oh, Mary and Joseph with the baby. Oh, it's so wonderful and cozy and nice. I don't think it was cozy or nice. I think it was a hard day. It was a hard week or month or however long it took for them to be in Bethlehem while she's about to have a baby to just cover this Roman demanded thing. I don't think it was a happy time in their lives. And of course, they had already sort of dealt with the fact that she's pregnant and they're not together yet. And while God made sure that both of them understood the great privilege of that, they still had to deal with the people who did not understand. It's a hard thing. And, of course, a manger, a manger's, you know, a feed box. This is not where you expect the king of kings to be. 
Well, the angels, of course, they need to announce stuff. This is what angels do. They're announcers, messengers of God. And so the angels have got to announce. So who receives the announcement? The city council? The Sanhedrin? Herod? I can imagine Herod saying, look, if there's going to be a king born, I'm the one that needs to be told. He didn't, even, he didn't know for years. Who received the angelic announcement? Shepherds. Shepherds? Well, now in the Bible, of course, shepherds have a sort of significance. But these shepherds don't have any significance. David was a shepherd. And I think there's a bit of a play here. The people who are going to receive the announcement are people like David, who we did not expect to be king because he's this punk kid watching the sheep. He's, I mean, they, you remember the story of David, right? Where Samuel comes to Jesse, David's father, and says, one of your sons is chosen to be king. And they go through him one by one from the oldest, most impressive, all the way down to the, they, they run out. And Samuel says, it's none of these guys. And they all look at Samuel and go, can't be David. They didn't even present David because it was so ridiculous. Because who is David? He's a kid watching the sheep. And so the angelic announcement is made to these nobodies. Nobody's shepherds in the field watching their sheep at night. And the angel appears to them, and they are, they're scared to death, and he says, it's okay, I have good news. And then, you know, there's this mighty army of angels that shows up in the sky and only these guys get to see it. It's one of the most fantastic displays that has ever occurred in the sky. Maybe I don't even have to say one of the most. And nobody gets to see it except these Nobody's. What on earth is God up to? This is all the story that he composed in eternity past for our salvation. He emptied himself to be born. He emptied himself. 
He's God Almighty, the eternal Son, one of the three persons of the triune God. He is the creator of all things. And he becomes a baby in Bethlehem in a stall in a manger. That is a great step down. He emptied himself being born. He wasn't, of course, he would have been emptying himself just to become a person, a man, a human being. That would have been emptying himself. But he didn't, he didn't come, he didn't empty himself to come at the top of the human pile. He came at the bottom. You cannot conceive of a lowlier position for one of us than where he was born, on a camp out, in a stall, with the animals around. Now, that's a big step down. But he's not done. Philippians says, as a man he humbled himself. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He started at the low end. But his way of life was to humble himself. To humble himself among people. The glory of the Lord Jesus is glorious humility, lowliness, gentleness. Jesus said this, Matthew chapter 11, gentle am I, lowly in heart. Come and find rest in me. You see, in his lowliness is his greatness. His magnificence is in the fact that Almighty God goes where he went. It's not the way any of us would have conceived this story. For me, this is one of the greatest evidences of the truth of the gospel message is that nobody would have written this story except God. God's been doing this for a long time, picking out things that weren't to make what will be. Abraham and Sarah from the get-go. As a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient, the text says. He became obedient God Almighty became obedient as a man. You might say, well, to who? Well, we all would recognize he's obedient to God, but you know who else he was obedient to? His parents. Do you know that the law of God says, children, obey your parents? And do you know that whoever 
<laughs> whatever Jesus did all his whole life was to completely obey the law of God. So guess what? He obeyed his parents. His parents. Now, I'm not Jesus. And I wasn't terribly good at obeying my parents. In fact, from time to time, though, I knew that what my parents required was wrong. From time to time. Luckily, I had pretty good parents, so that wasn't very common. But from time to time, they would demand something from me, and I could tell it was wrong. I wonder if Jesus ever had that experience. His parents were not perfect. They're sinners just like everyone else. From time to time, they were wrong. I don't know exactly how Jesus dealt with that, but I know he was always perfectly obedient to God and to his parents. The Scripture says in Luke chapter 2, the Scripture says he submitted himself to them. He humbled himself. He was obedient to his parents. He was obedient to the law. He was obedient to God, the Father. He says this all over the book of John as we've studied. It says, I always do what the Father asks. What the Father's doing, what the Father says is what I say. I am completely obedient as a human being. Jesus is completely obedient. Of course, he's also the son of God. And so he is in complete agreement all the time with whatever the Father's doing. And he always perfectly plays his part. He is obedient. And what does this text say? To the point of death. And so we come to the purpose of his birth, which is his death. To the point of death. And you know, he doesn't just die. His death, however it came, could satisfy the wrath of God for us. Could atone for our sinfulness. But it doesn't just come any old way. He doesn't just get a disease and die or have a heart attack and die or get hit by a chariot and die. He doesn't die an ordinary death. He dies the lowest possible kind of death. If there's a low way to die, it is to be killed by the government for some crime you've committed. And that is how he died. Of course, he hadn't actually committed any crimes, but he received the ultimate punishment of humanity, of human society, and, of course, 
at that particular time, that was also one of the most horrible ways ever invented by human beings to kill another human being. So Jesus didn't just die. He submitted himself even to death on the cross. The great step down. You see, Jesus is putting himself beneath everyone. Everyone. There's another criminal being killed. He puts himself beneath those people. To the point of death, even death on a cross. What we can see is the glory of God is in the humility of God. God is telling a story in which God humbles himself to be with us. And in humbling himself, he exalts us. There's a famous passage of Scripture. It's repeated several times in the Bible. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. This preacher I heard one time said, there's two jobs here. There's your job and there's God's job. Your job is to humble yourself. His job is to exalt you in due time. And then this guy said, now, if you start doing God's job, he starts working on yours. If you exalt yourself, he starts working on humbling you. He is better at it than you are. But Jesus completed this job. I can be kind of humble sometimes if I remember. And I don't naturally think of it. I don't automatically think, okay, how can I put myself as less important than you? I just don't do that. Do you? I don't know that I've ever met somebody who just naturally does that. Says, oh, well, me? down, everyone else above. Jesus didn't just do that from time to time. His whole life was that from beginning to end. He's not just born. He's born in Bethlehem in a manger. He doesn't just die. He dies on a cross as a victim of injustice. The way up is down. So we read, if we keep reading in Philippians, therefore, he, he became obedient to the point of death. Therefore, we read, God has highly exalted him. Jesus utterly surrendered himself to the Father Letting himself die is total dependence upon God. The promise of the Father to raise him from the dead. 
Now, he knew he would be raised. He had no doubt about it. He wasn't worried, but he totally trusted in God, which he totally trusted in all the time. Which I imagine you one would have to do if one was going to adopt this approach in society, in relationships, to humble yourself. Well, that really isn't very sensible. Unless you can count on the Father to exalt you in due course, at the right time, when necessary, for His purpose and for His glory. We don't automatically think that humility is a glorious thing, though we do kind of admire it when we spot it in somebody. But Jesus exhibited perfectly. And so we read in Philippians chapter 2, for this reason, verse 9, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. I read that and I think, wait a second, he's the eternal son of God. Well, who was it that God exalted? Not just the eternal son of God who doesn't need any exalting. He's as high as high can be all the time, never wasn't. Who is it he's exalting? The eternal son made flesh. The man, Jesus, is who he's exalting. The man who humbled himself, the one who let go of being God to be one of us and then finding himself one of us, humbled himself among us all the way to the cross for our sake and then is exalted. The human being, the one who was raised is Jesus, the man The one who ascended to heaven was the guy that was standing there talking to the disciples when it happened. The one who is currently seated at the right hand of the majesty on high is the man, Jesus, who intercedes for you and for me on the basis of his accomplishment of the cross. He says, there with me, they can come in. The man, and if he's not one of us, none of this works. If he's not born, we're wasting our breath here. So we have, because God has exalted him, we have implicit in that exaltation, the resurrection. He was dead at the, in the, just the last sentence. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, and God has highly exalted him. Well, he's not dead anymore. He's first of all raised from the dead. That's a fact of history. That human being was dead and became alive in his body you could shake his hand. You could hug him. He invited Thomas to put his hand in the wound. Flesh and blood, man. And if he's not, all this is nonsense talk. 
That's the claim of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If he's not raised, (laughs) we're all just wasting our breath. And when he says raised, he means raised in the flesh so that the body that died is now alive. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God made flesh, is an embodied person. Or the gospel is false. He's ascended. He's crowned. He's king of kings. And we have the promise of his return to raise us. He has been given the name that is above every name. Jesus Christ is Lord. Not the eternal son is Lord. That's that's an unnecessary statement. The eternal son has always been and always will be Lord. But Jesus Christ is Lord is a new thing. The one of us is Lord is a new thing. It is the good news. And everyone will notice it eventually. So we have not just his resurrection, but the promise of ours in this text. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This all grows from that little baby that no one noticed when he was born. But we notice it now. We notice it now. We already confess Jesus Christ is Lord. He is the risen one. He is seated. He is interceding for us. We have standing before the throne of grace because of what he did, humbling himself, being one of us, dying for us, rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, seated, interceding, and coming again. (laughs) Now, Paul tells this story in the book of Philippians for a reason. Because he wants us to be gospel people. He wants us to be bearers of the image of God like Jesus was. He wants us to exhibit his ways, which are not our ways, which we have a hard time. And so he says at the beginning of this text, have this same attitude. And he's really talking about toward each other. Toward each other. (laughs) Each of you, he says, should esteem others as more important than yourselves. My dad used to quote that verse to us. He had five kids to us all the time. We had to figure out what the word esteem means. And we would be, you know, fighting for place, position, pecking order. 
I suppose that happens in all groups of siblings. And he would say, let each of us esteem others more highly than ourselves. That is not our natural way. And then he says, have the same attitude that you see in Christ. Have the Christmas way in your heart. Adopt Christmas not just as a thing to celebrate once a year, but as a way of living. Well, now, you're, you can't do this if you don't do it the way he did it, which is empowered by the very Spirit of the living God, by faith in him, in the promise of his coming, in the promise of his intercession, in fellowship with him, then, okay, go for it. But this is the thing. We can see the Christmas story for what it really is and not just some romantic, lovely, I don't know, halo-y, you know, glowing thing, warm and fuzzy, but for the hard reality that God himself participated in for our sake. And so we can participate in the hard realities of other people's lives for their sakes. We can adopt the, the Christmas way of living. And that's what Paul is encouraging us to do here in the book of Philippians. I don't, you know, really mean to ruin anyone's celebration. It is the best thing ever. And it is to be celebrated, to rejoice in, to rejoice in. Jesus said, look, I'm telling you all this so that you will have my joy fully. Jesus was not an unhappy person. He was a humble person. You think being humble will make you unhappy. It won't. No one has had more joy than the Lord Jesus. Even, even, even on the cross where we read in the book of Hebrews, for the joy set before him, he endured. We have upside-down thinking. We have been presented with this great opportunity to rest ourselves in Christ and to live in his love toward others. Father, thank you. <laughs> Lord, it's, it's challenging. Father, I pray that you would fill us with your word and with the spirit. Help us to exhibit this love that you have so clearly exhibited to us. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.